Amen. 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 Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ruth. We have been discipled by Disney for many years, don't you think? We're, we're used to hearing the, the story where the hero comes in and rescues us all before the bad things happen. And actually what you've just heard is gospel truth. That in the midst of going through the pain and the suffering and the trial and the challenges and the storms, which we're going to be talking about this morning, you actually have God doing his un- surprising, unexpected, upside-down reverse work of healing in somebody's life. Powerful, powerful stuff, Ruth. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, it's so great to be with you and also to have your rousing welcome before. That was really underwhelming. I appreciate that. That was fantastic. I was, uh, some years ago, my publishers arranged for me to be interviewed at a very big Christian conference in Australia, which you may well have heard of. It's called Hillsong Conference. And it was my very first book several years ago, and uh, I was very excited because now I was suddenly an author, right? I was suddenly an an author. Now, I wasn't going to be interviewed on the main stage of Hillsong Conference, but Brian Houston, if you're listening, I'm happy to take your phone call. (laughs) I was going to be interviewed in a little resources tent that was just off to one side of the big Acer Arena, which, you know, arena sits there, tens of thousands of people, and I was just a little tent. But anyway, I was still excited. It was my big moment. So I got up early in the morning, and I jumped into the car, I drove to the venue, found the tent, walked in, and found things pretty good. So there was a stage, there was lots of seats, there was a good number of people milling about, and I thought, this is a good beginning. An announcement came over the PA system. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please join us at the stage for an interview with author Sheridan Boise. (sighs) My moment had come. And I thought to myself, what could happen at this very moment? What could happen after we do this interview? Will there be lines of people, queues of people wanting to get books signed? Will people be moved to tears by my profound insights? Will worldwide revival break out in this very tent? As a result of what's going, who knew what God was going to do? So the interviewer and I walked out onto the stage and we sat down and looked out onto the audience. How many people do you think were there? 400? 40? Four people were sitting in the audience and two of them were from my publishers. <laughs> and they were paid to be there. So we went on, you know, the show just just has to go on. So we were sitting there, we did the interview and everything, and you'll be happy to know that by the end of the interview, the audience had grown. There was a whole six people in the audience by the time. I know, big stuff. Cues lining up for sign. No, worldwide revival, not quite. You can imagine as soon as that was over, I was kind of keen to get out of there. So I stepped down and I walked out the entrance of the tent. And as I was walking out the entrance of the tent, I was met by this sea of people, thousands of people that were all streaming towards the arena. I thought, what's going on? I stopped somebody and said, what's going on? They said, oh, this big name speaker was about to go and step up onto the main stage of the arena. Thousands. I had six people in my audience. That night he would have 16,000. I remember they were all heading to the right and I wanted to go back to my car and so I had to turn to the left and I had to go and make my way through this giant crowd, you know, like this little goldfish swimming against stream, trying to get through the crowd. I got to the crowd, I got through the crowd, I found the car, I sat down in my car, opened the door, got in and felt very, very small. 
10 years later, I'm sitting in a lounge room in Oxford, and things have changed a lot in that decade, and a lot of things have changed, a lot of things have come and gone, and I've seen the audiences grow, I've seen the audiences completely go. I have had some more books published, and then after the books are published, I've found that I've had publishers say, no, we don't want to publish your books. Uh, I have had some big dreams fulfilled, and I've had a whole bunch of dreams broken. And I decide to try an experiment. I decide to read Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount every day for a month. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is very, very short. Three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You can read it from start to end in 15 minutes. And this speech is a speech that has inspired the Martin Luther King Juniors of the world. It's inspired the Gandhis of the world. It's inspired the Dietrich Bonhoeffers of the world. It's even inspired the Monty Pythons of the world. Blessed are the cheesemakers, I think he said. And so here we were, I was reading this thing every day for a month, and I discovered that it was a profound statement on the whole meaning of life. Everything you can think of that you, your life is made of is addressed in the Sermon on the Mount. It addresses our callings, it addresses our spirituality, it addresses our choices, it addresses our relationships. It talks about sex and money and prayer and conflict and possessions. It talks about every major challenge that you and I face even today. I, what, and I'm actually now a bit of an evangelist for the Sermon on the Mount because it's changed me so much. My experiment started off every day for a month. It then went on to two months, it then went on to three months as the sermon started to change me and transform the way I started thinking about all sorts of things, not least of which it comes to then speaking to an audience of six people. Because what happened was, as I was going through that, I discovered it wasn't just a statement about the meaning of life or even the, right, the good life, it was, a, it was a guide to the resilient life, which was a big surprise for me. So the sermon begins with this profound invitation it starts off with Jesus getting up and he starts speaking on these lovely rolling grassy hills that lead kind of down to Lake Galilee. And a bunch of people start gathering around him. It starts off being his disciples first off and then another bunch of people start crowding around them. And a bunch of people that are from the surrounding villages that Jesus has already helped and healed before. And he gets up and he gives these profound words which you know very well. He starts saying this, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those of you who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful and the pure in heart and the peacemakers and the persecuted. You might find these words comforting. They're actually radical. They are really radical words. In Jesus' day, you are considered blessed for the very same reasons that you would be considered blessed today. If you had a good reputation, if you had a model family, if you had access to the right social networks and the social circles, you're able to walk into the halls of power, if you were successful, if you were prosperous, if you had a lot of followers on Twitter, you would be considered to be a blessed person. You are blessed if you are pretty. You are blessed if you are prosperous. You are blessed if you are influential. You were blessed if you had all of those kinds of qualities and more. It wasn't the poor who were considered blessed. It wasn't the sad who were considered blessed, or the meek, or the persecuted. Those were not the people who were considered blessed in the day and age of Jesus, as much as they're not the people who are considered blessed today. And yet these were the very same people that Jesus was blessing, not the high and mighty, the little people. He was blessing the people who had six 
people in their audience. So you think about that today. One of the most fundamental questions that the human heart has is, am I lovable, right? Am I lovable? Every heart asks that, normally every day, in some kind of way, shape, or form. Am I lovable? Am I acceptable? Am I, am I just likable? Am I valued in some kind of way? And in an Instagram world, where really your popularity and your acceptability comes down to how pretty you look on an iPhone screen, or how bushy your hipster beard is, I would be an absolute write-off as a 20-something today. I really would, because I can't grow a hipster beard. And I'm so jealous of you guys, the testosterone. I don't know. And I, I don't have it. I just have little tufts here and there. And in an age where you're considered valuable if you get a lot of likes on your Facebook post, be honest with me, you put something on Facebook and nobody likes it, how do you feel? In an age where we're considered valued down to where you got your education, anybody heard of Oxford University? Or whether you, wherever you live, North Oxford. Actually, just a week ago, I heard that apparently there is some degree of pride to be associated with living in West Oxford. Did you know that? There, there, here's the key. Here's the key. West Oxford extends only so far up Botley Road. And in fact, Merrin and I live right on the border, apparently, of acceptability. In fact, somebody said, we live in West, West Oxford. Because, of course, after that comes that dark, murky, horrible, untouchable place called Botley. <laughs> I thought Botley was quite nice, but no, apparently, apparently it all comes down. Isn't it good that when you live in a world that judges whether you're likable or acceptable or valuable or lovable based on all these kinds of things, that Jesus rocks him up and he ignores all the world's popularity lists because that's what this is all about. Don't read these as virtues. Most of us actually read the, the Sermon on the Mount and these Beatitudes as virtues. We think, oh, God blesses the poor in spirit, so we should become poor in spirit. God blesses the merciful, we should become merciful. God blesses the meek, and we should become meek. Okay, that, that works for half of them. God blesses those who mourn, so we should mourn so that we become blessed by God. God blesses the persecuted. We should go and get persecuted. So we should. Jesus isn't talking about virtues here. He talks about some of those virtues elsewhere in the New Testament. Don't worry. It's a good thing to be a peacemaker. Right here, he's talking about people. He's looking out on a bunch of people that were not considered blessed either by the Roman authorities of the time or by the religious authorities who, did, who looked at blessedness in exactly the way that we've just explored. So Jesus starts off the Sermon on the Mount and he swings open the doors to his kingdom and he says, come on in, even if you live in Bodley. Come on in if you're sad and if you're lonely. Come on in if you're socially unacceptable. Come on in. Come on in because the kingdom of the, of the Romans is not open to you and actually the kingdom of the religious elite is not open to you, but my kingdom is. Are you with me? Starts off in a profound way. What a good way to start off building a strong life, a resilient life. So, with Jesus, what happens is he walks in the room and the insignificant become blessed, even those who've only got a couple of people sitting in his audience. Sermon begins with an invitation and then it moves on to a calling. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that England is an absolute mess. And some of you are saying... Well, it doesn't take too much to imagine that. And imagine that for a, for a second that you have, been, you have been voted in as prime minister to sort the mess out. 
And some of you are saying, well, I have actually thought about that a few times. And imagine if you have a plan that you know will restore peace and prosperity to the country. And you have the power to call anybody who you choose to come and serve by your side to make that plan happen. Who do you pick? You pick the best and brightest in the land, right? You go and scour England for the finest leaders and thinkers and economists and strategists because this is no time for small people. This is time for big, influential, arena-filling talent, right? You don't entrust a task of rebuilding a country, turning the world upside down to little, small, insignificant people unless you're Jesus. Because then once Jesus... It's talk, we find out a little bit more about the audience that are standing before him. If we go back a few verses in Matthew 4, we find that the crowd before him, the people who have been ill with various diseases and they've suffered pain and demon possession, they've had seizures and are paralyzed, not a lot of power in the room, folks. This is not a group of influential, high-minded, bright and best people of the land. And Jesus looks out on those people those very people, looks them dead in the eye and he says this, you, you are the salt of the earth. Don't lose your saltiness because I've chosen you, you to be the salt of the earth. I've chosen you to bring out the God flavors of the world as Eugene Peterson paraphrases in his paraphrase of the Bible. The God flavors of the earth. I've chosen you to point out where the goodness and the truth and the beauty is that is already there because it's made in the, the creation as a, as, a, as a revelation of God's own creativity. I've chosen you to be somebody who makes the world tasty, who brings some value to the world. I've chosen you to do the preserving work of salt in society, stopping society from decaying, stop it from going rotten, saying no to certain things. You. And then he says, and you, I've called you, you, to be the light of the world. Go out and do amazing things that shine and reveal the very glory of God. And by the way, when we talk about glorifying God, that's what we mean, revealing God is when we glorify God, we're revealing something of his nature and character to the world. And he says it's through little things like giving soft toothbrushes to a friend. I've got chosen you, you, salt of the earth, you, light of the world. And I think in the spirit of Monty Python, there's a bit of it that goes, are you sure, Jesus? Are you sure? Are you really sure? What effects could this group of peasants have? What effect could this group of farmers and homemakers and suburbanites and people from Botley, what group like that could have? What influence could they have on the world? And actually it turns out that they could have an incredible influence on the world. In just a few years, they will start to spread the story of Jesus right throughout the Roman Empire. Within a couple of centuries, it'll be turned upside down. Little people little people, not the big and brightest and the elite, little people, small people, the people who you don't expect to be the ones who will be the ones who are life changers. One of the things that I love about being here in England is the fact that you can walk anywhere and you can unearth a story. Hour and a half drive south and we've got 5,000 years in a wonderful little bunch of rocks down there. An hour north and we've got 
Stratford-upon-Avon, where Shakespeare lived, the whole bunch, everywhere we walk around here in Oxford, there is a story on every street. And one of the stories I love from this country is the story of a little guy named Cademan. Anybody know Cademan's story? Nobody knows? Great, excellent. It's always nice when nobody knows the story, particularly the punchline. So Cademan was this 7th century farmhand. His job was tending the animals at Whitby Abbey up in the north. Cademan is a farmer. That's all his job is, is to sweep out the stores, basically, at the end of the day. He has this dream. And in the dream, a man appears to him and says, Cademan, sing a song about creation. And Cademan says, I'm a farmer, I'm not a singer. And as he continues on, the guy says to him, you can sing this, you can do this, sing a song about creation. And as the dream continues on, Cademan does indeed sing a song praising the creator of all. And when he wakes up in the morning, surprisingly to him, he can remember it in detail. He goes to his foreman, tells him the experience. The foreman takes him to Hilda, now St. Hilda, the abbess who was in charge of the priory at the time. And she gives him a little bit of a test. She said, okay, well, if you've had this thing, let's, let's, let's put this to the test. How about you come back tomorrow and you come back with a new song? This time, let's base it on a verse of scripture. So Cademan goes away, prays about the scripture, comes back the next day with a new song. He can't believe it. Nobody else can believe it. Next time, they do it again. And again, the next day he comes back, he comes back with a brand new song. Well, Hilda wakes up and she says, well, something's going on with this guy. God has doing, done something with our farm hand. And so instead of going with convention, she's decided to make sure that he got educated in scripture and history and trained and taught all the great stories of the world and of God. And every day he was tasked with a new mission to go out and come back with a new song based on a new scripture. And every day we are told by the great historian Bede that Cayman wrote lyrics with such sweetness and humility. Don't you love those two words? Such sweetness and humility that they led people to tears, to worship, and to repentance. The thing that I love about that story is that Cayman's just a farmhand. He's not the king. He's the kind of little, little person, small person, that Jesus says, yeah, I want to use you. I want to use you. I don't know about you, but I've had many other times, apart from sitting in that car, where I felt very, very small and insignificant and felt like I haven't had any platform or power or, or anything like that to be able to wield any kind of influence in the world and feel like I don't have a particular gifting or whatever it might be. And maybe you feel really small and insignificant sometimes. It's a really good time to look up and go, I'm the very kind of person Jesus loves to use. Because Jesus gives us a calling, a calling to be salt and light of the world. And it can be something so small that reveals the very glory of God. Are you with me so far? You're not falling asleep, are you? You're with me, aren't you? I'm so glad about that. When Jesus is around, the insignificant become blessed and the small become great. Isn't Jesus great? I think Jesus is really great. And by the way, if you don't know much about him, just go to Google and do a Google image search because you will find out everything you need to know about Jesus of Nazareth based on Google. You will find out how he began life as a meek, mild child, not a crying word he makes. You will find that he grew up to be this lovely, serene man with long, flowing hair, and I think he likes mascara, personally. <laughs> and in fact, hasn't he got a bit of a hipster beard going on? As well, there's something very hip and very now 
about Jesus going on. You'll find out that, of course, that he wandered the streets and wandered the, wandered the, wandered the valleys telling bedtime stories. It's a nice, a nice Jesus, this one. Wherever he goes today, of course, love hearts appear in the sky, and wherever he uh, goes, uh, supermodels seem to appear <laughs> out of nowhere. If you're not a Christian, you can have this. This is the invitation of a lifetime. You can have this. I, just, I particularly like the lion, the tiger down there. It's all very, it's all very rough. Uh, Jesus is, well, look at He gives his heart to you. He's a lovely, comforting kind of soul. He is a teacher of love. And apparently, he really, really loves animals. In particular, he loves lambs. He really likes lambs. Lots and lots of lambs. He just loves, loves lambs. I don't know what it is, what it is about our kitsch Christian art. We always have Jesus cuddling and cradling lambs because what we have with Google Jesus is like a Hallmark card Jesus. He doesn't disturb anybody. He's a comforter of souls, right? He would never, ever cause to do something difficult or hard. Or No, he's there to cuddle and cradle us, I believe, friends, in a comforting Jesus. Read the Sermon on the Mount, friends, and you'll find he's a little bit more than that. Because we find that meek and mild Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is neither meek nor mild. We find that the comforter of souls is actually out to disturb us. Read this next section of the Sermon on the Mount, and of course I'm jumping a lot, but read this next section of the Sermon on the Mount and you will find Jesus being really quite challenging. He calls us to a level of spirituality and holiness that neither of us, then we've never gone anywhere near. But it's not meant to then pull us down, it's actually meant to call us up. It's actually meant to call us up to live a life of glorifying God through what we do and through how we say. But in the meantime, he actually really takes, takes issue. So he says that if we are people of hate, if we are people of anger, if we are people who call each other names or call other people names, people of another political persuasion or another sexual persuasion or whatever it might be, if we call people names, we're in danger of hell. Ouch. Hate is as bad as murder, he says. He says lust is just as bad as adultery. He gets really, he says the grounds for divorce are basically nil. No grounds for divorce. He's tough. He says we should give without anybody knowing and we should pray quietly and we should fast privately so nobody knows where to stop judging each other hypocritically. He really gets into us. And in probably the most bone-shaking, rattling of words, he says, not everybody who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, is going to be accepted into the kingdom of heaven. Hang on, Jesus, aren't you the one who's just blessed the, the, the poor and blessed all the people that aren't supposed to be blessed? That's kind of tough, isn't it? With all the challenging things that Jesus says, there is actually a thread that weaves through them all. And it's the thread of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus never said it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said it elsewhere. But if you look at everything that he says in this next section, that's what he's actually building on. That's the foundation that everything, that's the ground of which all the rest sprouts. Because if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, you won't stay in hate or anger. You will move towards reconciliation, as difficult as that might be with what somebody's done to you. If you are loving your neighbor, you won't stay in lust. You will move towards faithfulness to your spouse or to your future spouse. 
if you are loving the Lord your God, you won't be walking around praying in such a way that you're trying to get everybody to look at you and say, what a spiritual person he is. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't be giving to charity in order to be recognized as this amazing, generous person, to be celebrated and applauded. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It is the very foundation of what Jesus is talking about, but it comes to a crescendo, to a point, to an apex in the Sermon on the Mount where he gives these very, very tough words and he says this, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Has anybody ever issued more difficult words? In fact, we've had no other religious leader in history ever issue something like that. These are most profound, profound words. And I would suggest, doesn't that say something profound about the person who said them? And so what happens with Jesus comes into the room. And as soon as he walks into the room, we have this invitation. The invitation is followed by a calling, and the calling is followed by a challenge. And the challenge is to have evil transformed into love. Many of you know that I've had some years in radio and I've interviewed some really fascinating people and heard some fascinating stories. And one story was this guy, Johnny Lee Clary. Johnny Lee Clary, many years ago, was the imperial wizard that is the worldwide leader of the Ku Klux Klan, the uh, most horrendous white supremacy group in history. One day, Johnny was invited to a radio station debate where he would be debating against this guy, Reverend Wade Watts. As they were waiting in the radio station, waiting for the debate, Reverend Watts held out his hand to Johnny and said, Mr. Clary, I'd just like you to know that I love you and Jesus loves you. You can imagine that debate was pretty intense because Johnny Lee Clary was arguing why whites and blacks should be separated and Reverend Watts was arguing from scripture why that shouldn't be the case. They should actually be together. There's no black or white or male or female, slave nor free. He was arguing that way. You can imagine it was intense and after the debate, Johnny Lee Clary wanted to get out of the station pretty fast and he was leaving and Reverend Watts called out after him and he said, nothing you can do, Mr. Clary, can make me hate you. I will love you and pray for you whether you like it or not. From that point on, Johnny got really, and Johnny told, told me this directly, he got really vicious. From that point on, the reverend's windows were smashed, they started burning effigies in his lawn, they burnt down one of his churches, set fire to another of his churches. Reverend Watts' children had to be escorted to school by the authorities every day. But Reverend Watts never retaliated, and neither did he give in. In the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks about not resisting an evil person and turning the other cheek and going the extra mile, he's not saying, by the way, just give in, let them all trample over you. He's saying, don't get even or give in, get creative. Get creative with your love and love the most vile person, the enemy. And so Reverend Watts tried to do just that. And he was often very clever at it. One day, Johnny rang him up and said, we're coming to get you, and this time we mean business. And Reverend Watts said, hello, Johnny Lee. You don't have to come for me. I'll come to you. How how about we have lunch? I know a really nice restaurant, actually, out on Highway 370. I'm paying. Another day, Reverend Watts was having lunch in a diner. And the KKK and Johnny Lee Clary busted in, surrounded his table, and Johnny Lee said, what you're about to do to that piece of chicken, we're about to do to you. 
And do you know what Reverend Watts did? He picked up the piece of chicken and he kissed it. <laughs> I want to be that quick and that fast and that sharp in a situation like that. Everything that Johnny Lee sent Reverend Watts's way, he was able to transform from hate into love. Johnny Lee Clary's life ultimately collapsed. His marriage broke down. He left the clan because of all the infighting. He cried out to God and he became a Christian. And very soon he really felt this desire that he wanted to preach and speak and teach. And so he rang up Reverend Watts one day and told him the news. You know what Reverend Watts did? He said, have you spoken anywhere yet, son? How about you come and speak for your very first time in my all-black church? <laughs> and so Johnny Lee Clary, former leader of the Ku Klux Klan, preached his very first sermon in the very church he once set fire to. Is there not a God in the heavens who does his most amazing work in the hearts of people who will submit and who will actually try and live out the Sermon on the Mount? Now, let's not be... You know, sometimes we go through some pretty rough times, right? With Martin Luther King Jr., it didn't work out well. In this case, it did. It doesn't always work. It doesn't always result in success. It's not always the Disney ending. Sometimes it works out very, very poorly. However, what happened with Martin Luther King Jr., it set off a movement for change because they were simply faithful in the midst of that. So the Sermon on the Mount has this profound thing where the insignificant become blessed and those who are small become great, and then evil is turned into love. It pushes out hate. After the invitation comes a calling, after the calling comes a challenge, and after the challenge comes a promise. And actually, by this stage, I've been reading the Sermon on the Mount for a few weeks now, every day, like I said, and I'd been challenged by some bits and comforted by other bits, and I'd been absolutely rot to the core by some bits that I was reading. This bit was the bit that was the surprise. I did not see this coming. I really was not expecting that I would be reading the kinds of words that we're talking about. Now, the fact is, you know, as well as I do, that Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount on a famous story of two builders, right? You probably know, at the very least, the Sunday School song. And so it's about two builders, each of them are building a house each. And the first guy does the proper preparation work. He digs down beneath all the sand, he finds the bedrock, and he builds that from, up that, from that point up. The other guy can't be bothered. He just builds his house on the sand, the bricks and the wood start from the sand up. Both of them experience the storms. The storms come to both of them. The first guy has his house stand. The second guy has his house collapse. The fact is, resilience, as Ruth was saying, is not just simply the ability to be strong. It's actually, in terms of the definition, it's the ability to spring back when you've been pushed out of shape. It's the ability to get up when you've been knocked down again. It's the ability when your house is being rocked and shaked from left to right and you're absolutely experiencing all the, the, the ruffling winds and the flood waters and the tor torrential rain that's flowing on you that you're able to stand in the midst of that even though there's going to be some creaking in the midst. That's what resilience is. But how do we get it? How do we actually build it? This is where Jesus' definition and kind of revelation of this story comes in. Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against that house. It did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. And so Jesus has this promise. He says, if you don't just listen to the sermon, if you don't just download 
all the sermons from your favorite preacher, Steve Jones. If you don't just watch all your favorite Bible preachers, Joyce Meyer, whoever it might be, don't just underline your red letter Bibles. If you actually start putting what I've said into practice, doing some little experiments and applying it to your life, that is how you build resilience. That's how you'll be strong, not snatched away from the storms, but through the storms. You will be resilient. Many of you know that Merrin and I came to the UK to start our lives again. For 10 years, we tried to start a family. We weren't able to. And we came here to basically have a consolation prize and start over. Many of you will know that that story unexpectedly got turned into a book called Resurrection Year, which I wasn't expecting to write. What you probably won't know is that as a result of going public with our story, hundreds upon hundreds of people have emailed me, Facebooked, you know, pulled me aside at conferences to then tell me their story, sometimes for the very first time. I was speaking at a conference in Australia last, well, a couple of years ago, and after I'd given our story, a lady came up and she said, our lives began to fall apart when my daughter took her life. And then a few months later, our second daughter began to self-harm. And we didn't know what was going on in our family. What on earth was taking over our daughters? She said only later did we discover what was the cause. They had been missionaries overseas, and those two daughters had been sexually abused in the mission-run school. She said, we've given our lives to God. We'd gone to the other side of the world to serve him. Weren't, weren't, we, weren't we in his will? Why didn't he protect us? A little bit later on, a guy comes up and he says, my wife and I adopted a couple of children from the Philippines. And he, later on did we discover that one of them has severe autism and he gets very violent and he likes to shout his hatred of my wife most days. Our marriage is now in trouble because I've got a particular way I want to deal with him and she thinks it's the wrong way. She wants to go her different way. We, we don't agree about how to deal with him. Weren't we serving God? Weren't we doing what the gospel calls us to do and look after orphans? What do we do to deserve a child who kicks in our walls? Another guy comes to me at the end of the day. He says, I used to be an evangelist. I used to travel the country sharing the good news of Jesus. And then my four-year-old son died. He says, I tell people that I trust God, but I'm not too sure if I really trust God. Jesus is no slick self-help teacher offering seven steps success stories to people with a winkling of an eye, a twinkling of an eye and a wink of his... Wink of, he's not doing anything like that. He says, we will face storms. But he says... I have got something for you that will help you get through the storms. I have got a life and a calling that will help you get through those storms. It's not whether the storms are going to come, it's going to how you're going to actually get through them. Because the fact is, storms of life came into his life, right? When Jesus is up telling the Sermon on the Mount, he's in the popularity part of, uh, of his career. Everybody loves him. At the end of the sermon, they say, what wonderful words he has. They're fantastic. The problem is that very soon those very same people who are saying all these things are going to be calling for him to be crucified. 
The very fact is that the very friends that he has are going to deny him. They're going to be deserting him. His own family members are going to be coming up saying, I'm not too sure whether he's mentally stable. The people of his own village are going to drive him out of town. The Romans are going to come chasing after him. And the religious authorities are going to come chasing after him. In fact, the religious authorities are going to do a deal with the political authorities to basically do him in. And it will succeed. He will be pinned to two pieces of wood with a whole bunch of rusty nails. Jesus is completely and utterly in the will of God. And what's the result? Storms, torrents, trouble. But trouble followed by a resurrection, right? And what happens is that Jesus then transforms everything that we go through into a surprising, unexpected source of life. And so what happens is we have this kind of formula that goes on, is that Jesus comes to bless all the wrong people and to do things that we're not expecting him to do. And the the interesting thing for me, folks, is the fact that psychologists today look into resilience and they say that really it's built on four things. It's built on positive emotions, so you're able to emphasize peace and love and not be caught up in bitterness and anger and things like that. Jesus addresses all those things in the sermon. It's built on strong relationships. Jesus has a whole section where he deals with relationships and the four forces that destroy them. It's built on having a sense of meaning and purpose to your life when Jesus teaches us in the sermon to teach and pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's giving us something bigger to be a part of. And he teaches us also, the psychologists say, that the fourth factor is a sense of accomplishment and Jesus calls us to be salt and light. And so I think that's pretty cool because Jesus beat the psychologists to their game by 2,000 years. But Jesus then gives us a resilience that is far beyond what the psychologist could give us. They just can't do it. He gives us a resilience that can last beyond death itself. Because Paul says, just as Jesus was raised from the dead physically, this isn't a metaphor or a nice story, just as he was physically raised from the dead, so will we, we will be too. That's a resilience beyond this, quite literally, beyond this world. And in the meantime, he then takes all the stuff and the junk and the rubbish and the chemotherapy, and he's able to recycle it, redeem it, resurrect it, shall we say, into something unexpected. This is the God that we follow. And so we have this Jesus who comes, and he says that the insignificant become blessed, and the small become great, and evil becomes love, and then weakness does become strength. I don't know about you, but I think there's plenty of reasons why we can sometimes feel insignificant in this world, and there's plenty of reasons why we can feel small. The band can come up, and I'll pass over to Al in just a second. I think there's plenty of reasons why we can feel a bit overwhelmed by some of the evil in the world, particularly over the last few weeks, where we've seen the bombings in Paris, and we're thinking about those sleeper cells that are apparently even right here in this country and all sorts of other Western countries. The fact is that Islamic terrorism is not going to be going away anytime soon but we've got a few different ways that we can respond to it. We can go and bomb them, or we can have a call from Jesus to actually do something a little bit different and unexpected. Can I suggest to you that the the need of the hour right now is for people who are Jesus-shaped people who are actually going to live the Sermon on the Mount out in everyday life. My little experiment lasted one month to two, then two to three, and I sit in front of the news each night now going, Sermon on the Mount speaks to that. Sermon on the Mount speaks to that. Consumerism, Sermon on the Mount speaks to that. Hedonism, Sermon on the Mount speaks to that. Terrorism, Sermon on the Mount speaks to that. You'll find that it gives you a framework for dealing with life and living a resilient life. So, my friends, I just ask, will you consider 
doing the same kind of experiment in your own life. Just try reading the Sermon on the Mount every day for a month, just one month. Take your 15 minutes a day. Some days you won't be able to get through it because you'll be really stuck on one verse and you want to go through and really deep into that verse, maybe for a few days, maybe even a week. Just, just sink in it, live in it, dwell in it. Let his spirit take what is there and turn it into experimental living as you try and live it out. Okay, so Jesus, I just ask that you would do your work in us. Lord, we thank you for being so countercultural and everything that we think is the right way to do something or deal with evil or deal with hedonism or deal with consumerism, whatever, but you come with this completely left field way of dealing with it. And thank you for that profound statement of life that you've given us in the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, we would hate to come away from here thinking it's all about moralistic living and doing good things. You inspire us by your spirit to live this out, and we ask that you would, for the sake of your kingdom, your name, and for the sake of our community and our world and our country. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay.